This is Product by Design, a podcast by Prodigy, where we explore technology, artificial intelligence, user experience, product management, and the philosophy of building products and companies. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and this week we have another awesome guest with us, Sharish Nadkarni. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to talk to you. Uh, Let me give a brief intro uh, for you, and then you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. But Sharish is a serial entrepreneur who's founded several companies and worked on some critical products for some of the biggest companies in technology. He's also a writer, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the book as well, Winner Takes All, uh, which I finished reading uh, in the last couple of days, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But With that, Shreesh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a native of Seattle. I've been in Seattle for the last 35 years. Um, I started my career at Microsoft uh, in the days of MS-DOS, if you can believe it. Uh, This was 1987. Um, I worked for Microsoft for about 12 years, Uh, did some exciting things like the acquisition of Hotmail and launching MSN.com. And then I started a 15-year entrepreneurial journey where I started three companies, uh, had uh, two uh, uh, exits out of that, um, and uh, had the opportunity to work with some really smart people uh, and also see kind of industry transformation over time from PCs to internet, mobile, now AI. So I've been very lucky to have uh, participated in some of those uh, trends. That's that's an incredible background, and we'll we'll, we'll touch on some of it. Uh, and I feel like we could probably spend hours kind of diving into some of the experience. But before we do, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you like to do outside of the office or outside of some of the work that you're doing? Well, I'm a huge uh, tennis fan. Uh, I uh, watch uh, uh, tennis uh, almost every day. Right now, I'm watching Wimbledon which is going on in London as, uh, as we speak. And then um, also play like to play tennis, uh, play about two, three times a week. That's great. I, I absolutely love, love tennis. Uh, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite sports as well. So mm-hmm. that is, uh, that's awesome. Uh, well, I want to dive into some of the things in your background, uh, a number of, of things that you've been writing about and thinking about, but um, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your journey and, you know, what was it like, uh, in the early days of, of Microsoft in, in, you know, very, you don't have to dive too much into it, but you know, what was that like? And then, you know, what eventually led you to pursue, uh, some of the entrepreneurial things that you did and then eventually writing? Yes, you bet. Um, so, um, I joined Microsoft in 1987, uh, one year after they went IPO, they were still a very small company, about 1,500 employees or so. Um, and um, I was assigned the, uh, the job of being the product manager for uh, Microsoft Mail. Um, and just to give you some context, uh, at that time, local area networks uh, were just starting to be prevalent in offices. Uh, it was that early. I mean, we now take networking for granted, but... Uh, uh, that was when local area networks were being, uh, uh, you know, you started seeing them in, in corporations. And we felt that email was a critical application to uh, take advantage of uh, local area networks. Um, I then had the opportunity to work uh, on uh, develop- development tools uh, and then MSN 
uh, where I did the acquisition of Hotmail. And that was what uh, really um, inspired me to do my own um, startup because um, Hotmail was started by two founders. Uh, the simple idea to provide web-based email, uh, free email accounts to uh, folks, and it grew very rapidly. Um, very simple idea, as I said, uh, but uh, enormous appeal. Um, so I felt actually that uh, there was an opportunity to create something similar, but for small businesses, because small businesses have some additional needs in terms of security and administration and so forth. And so that was my original idea that I started off with. And then over time, we pivoted it to mobile email as, uh, you know, BlackBerry became available and uh, you had cellular devices with uh, data connectivity and, and so forth. Uh, so that was a little bit of uh, some history about Microsoft and how I got into becoming an entrepreneur. That's great. Uh, and just and so, so interesting. Is there, as you've kind of looked over the, the course of technology, uh, over you know the last thirty years, what has been you know maybe the most interesting thing to you, or or maybe you know the biggest change as you've as we've kind of progressed from like you were saying, uh, the very early days of email and even you know just local area networks in offices to to where we are now. I mean, some of the the key trends that um, I was able to leverage, uh, you know, was the internet and then um, mobile. Uh, and that kind of culminated uh, with the formation of my first company, Tmont Systems, uh, where we provided uh, email access uh, over a mobile uh, device and ultimately over BlackBerry as we got acquired by BlackBerry in 2002. And BlackBerry in those days, uh, if uh, you're young enough to uh, remember that, was a quite an iconic device. Uh, in fact, it was referred to as BlackBerry because it was so addictive. Um, so that was kind of my early foray into mobile, internet, and email. Uh, I'll, it'll be interesting to see the number of people who who are listening who remember that. But I definitely remember the the absolute uh, craze around Blackberries and the number of devices. It was li- it was I mean it was literally the device to have um, mm. for for a number of years up until. Uh, some of the other, obviously, things like the iPhone and other ones came out, but that was uh, the the most popular and and some of the best things that you could buy as far as mobile devices go. Um, well, you've you've written several books, and, and I want to kind of dive into that as well. Uh, the most recent one, "Winner Takes All: How Online Marketplaces Are Creating Modern Monopolies," uh, and I'm interested in you. Know, maybe you can give us an overview. What is that about, and what? drove you to to write this book specifically? Yes. So as the title um, illustrates, uh, the book is about uh, marketplaces. And what's um, unique about marketplaces is that uh, it can be a winner-take-all or a winner-take-most kind of scenario. Because as you gain critical mass, um, network effects kick in. And, uh, you know, more, more consumers join because there are more suppliers, more suppliers join because there are more consumers. And, and suddenly, you know, you have millions of consumers, millions of suppliers interacting with each other. And it's, it becomes very difficult for a new entrant into the market to overcome that uh, advantage. Um, the uh, reason that I wrote the book is because I've been fascinated by uh, marketplaces and was fortunate to have created one with my second company, which was called Live Mocha, 
It was a language learning site, one of the biggest on the internet at that time. Um, and we created a, a marketplace between language learners and language tutors. We had over 15 million language learners across 200 different countries, and we had over 300,000 language tutors who were eager to teach them how to learn a language. So I got some real good experience uh, working on a marketplace, and I thought that I should share some of those experiences with uh, the readers. That's really interesting, and especially you know having developed and grown a marketplace like that. And I'll be interested. You know, we can we can talk a little bit more about that. But maybe you know, as you talk about in the book, you kind of start very early on, uh, especially with digital marketplaces. Obviously, marketplaces have existed for a long, long time, but the history of digital marketplaces is obviously a little bit more recent, mm-hmm. and the evolution of those. Um, you know. What you you discuss it in the book, but maybe you can give us a little bit of background on the beginnings of some of these digital marketplaces and how they evolved over time. Uh, right. Uh, so it's been it's been very interesting to see the evolution of these marketplaces. Uh, you started uh, in what I describe as the listing era, and 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 that uh, that um, you know encompassed uh, marketplaces like uh, eBay. Uh, Taobao in, in China, Alibaba uh, as well, and then uh, Craigslist was a very popular uh, marketplace. And uh, mostly they were fairly simple uh, in structure. Um, you know, if you wanted to, um, you know, sell some product on uh, Craigslist, for example, you went there and listed your item, and the buyer uh, had to sort through all the listings, figure out, you know, which listing was attractive. Contact the buyer, arrange for shipment, or you know, you know, you go, go to go meet that person somewhere to purchase the device, um, and you had to consummate the purchase yourself. Uh, so that was what I call the listings uh, era, uh, and then after that, um, you had um, an era called that I call the unbundling of Craigslist. So Craigslist is a giant marketplace of multiple individual marketplaces, and so you had. Uh, vendors uh, or marketplaces like uh, Airbnb is a good example where they they came in and picked apart the one segment of Craigslist, which was listing of apartments uh, for rent. Uh, similarly, OfferUp, uh, which is a very popular um, site for secondhand goods, uh, you know, entered the market and um, uh, you know took on Craigslist directly in terms of selling secondhand uh, goods. Um, so that was kind of the uh, in the 2005-2010 timeframe. And then finally, you had what I call the Uber for X, um, you know, timeframe where you had uh, companies like Uber, you had uh, Craig, uh, sorry, uh, DoorDash, you had uh, Instacart, etc. Uh, doing delivery, uh, you know, for the, um, for the consumers, uh, delivery or ride sharing uh, in the case of Uber. And the process was a lot more automated than what you found with uh, Craigslist. Um, you know, with Uber, for example, um, you want to go somewhere, you simply enter the address and they'll automatically uh, find the uh, driver uh, for you, uh, show you a map of where the driver is, when they'll be arriving. And then once the ride is consummated, then you build automatically. So it's all very uh, seamless, you know, process. So that's kind of, kind of you know roughly been the um, you know evolution of marketplaces 
you know, from all the way back in 1995 uh, till today. It's a really interesting evolution as we've seen kind of from the the listing, like you said, to the unbundling to the more end-to-end service where, it, you know, it's not just unbundled, but you have kind of the complete uh, service uh, for both the the uh, suppliers and, the, uh, you know, those who are consuming it. As you kind of allude to in the title, you have this, you know, winner takes all or winner takes most, like you said, uh, which we've definitely seen in a number of these marketplaces. Um, for those uh, who may be working on, uh, you know, building or growing a marketplace, you know, how does that impact what they're doing? And, and you know, how can you actually jumpstart or scale uh, a marketplace that, you know, may not be the current winner? Yeah. Um, so there are a number of ways to um, do that. Uh, first of all, I recommend a highly focused approach, you know, pick one city, one region uh, to get started. And that's what, um, you know, Instacart and DoorDash did. They started in San Francisco, OfferUp started in, in Seattle. Uh, it's a lot easier if you narrow the scope of your initial marketplace. And then um, um, the other uh, thing is uh, as much as possible, uh, focus on getting the supply to the marketplace. Uh, and in some instances, you may have to do that even without the permission of the suppliers. Uh, so as an example, uh, Instacart, uh, when, they got st- when they got started, uh, the founder, Apurva Mehta, uh, scraped the product content off Safeface site and published it on his website. Um, and people could then order uh, groceries uh, from those items that were displayed. And then he himself actually went and picked up the groceries and delivered them So because he wanted to understand the whole end-to-end experience. Uh, same thing with uh, DoorDash. Uh, they started off originally in Palo Alto, and they basically took the PDFs of all the restaurant menus and published it on their site. And then they would actually, uh, when somebody called in to place an order, they would then turn around and place the order with the restaurant. And the restaurant didn't really understand, didn't even realize that this was being done by a marketplace. And then once they had critical mass, then they went to the restaurants and said, you know, by the way, we have already placed, you know, 100 orders with your restaurant. Why don't you join our platform and become a supplier, uh, you know, uh, uh, supplier on our marketplace? And so that's how you should think about getting started uh, initially. I think that's great. And a couple of points that you mentioned, like really focusing on a specific segment. So not necessarily targeting every segment or every area, but really being focused. And then you mentioned, uh, and you mentioned this in the book that there's kind of this chicken and egg problem of, you know, who do you bring first? Do you bring the consumers or the users, the buyers or the suppliers? And you mentioned, you know, focus on the supplier side in order to eventually bring in more and more of the buyers or the consumers or the customers. And so really focusing on, you know, some of those specifics, I'm interested, you know, in the approach that you took building up, uh, your, uh, company and, and the marketplace there, you know, what were some of the lessons that you learned from that? And you, what was kind of your approach and, and some of the outcomes that you saw from that? Yeah. So with, Live Mocha, um, we focus first on the consumer side, uh, in this case, as opposed to the supplier side. So 
<laughs> the opposite of what I mentioned before. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, we had uh, language learning you know, solutions for multiple languages. So people could come and learn um, a specific language and then learn from each other. Um, so we could do all of that without really having the language tutors on our platform initially. So if we first focused on getting lots of consumers and we got to about 100,000 users in three months, a million user in, in 12 months, and, and thereon, it you know, grew very rapidly. And then once um, we had all these consumers, then it became a lot easier for us to go and acquire the language tutors because they saw hey, oh, this huge volume of language learners in different countries would want to learn a variety of different languages. And so it became a lot easier at that point to uh, recruit the language tutors to our platform. So each situation is different. You have to analyze, you know, uh, which one, which side is easier to acquire, whether it's, you know, the consumer side or the supplier side, and then go with that strategy. That, I think that's a really interesting point. And, uh, you know, kind of going to how you approached it, you know, bringing in uh, a number of the the learners in this case for language learning and, you know, which, which side of that makes the most sense? Obviously for a lot of companies, it is the supplier side or, or you're bringing the supply. And then in other cases, it may be you know, the opposite. And so really understanding, uh, that as far as the economics of marketplaces, you, you talk about this in the book, how, you know, pricing is different for yes. marketplaces for whether it's two-sided or a multi-sided marketplace, you know, how, how does pricing differ or how is it different in a marketplace than, you know, maybe a traditional pricing uh, for, for software or services or products? Because you have multiple uh, sides of the equation, you can make money from both sides or either side or just one side uh, with marketplaces. Um, you know, uh, traditionally, um, you know, the uh, marketplace will take a cut of the uh, transaction. So the supplier defines the price point and then uh, the uh, marketplace will take a cut of that uh, price point. Uh, but in certain instances, uh, you can have situations where uh, like with Ticketmaster or StubHub, uh, they will actually take a cut on both sides of the, you know, they will take a cut from the supplier, the, the, you know, the provider of the tickets, uh, as well as charge an extra fee uh, to the consumer for the privilege of buying because they are a monopoly. Uh, you end up paying these, uh, you know, outrageous fees to Ticketmaster or Stop Up, um, because of the monopoly power that they have. So, um, you know, it can be very different, uh, depending on the, um, whether they're a monopoly, you know, where the money lies, who's paying whom. There are different scenarios in which how money is made uh, in marketplaces. Yeah. And you talk a lot about that in the book, you know, the different ways of uh, monetizing or, uh, you know, where each of those different areas are, which, which I think for those building marketplaces is extremely valuable because it kind of dives into a number of those uh, different areas or ways to think about it. But yeah. you mentioned uh, Ticketmaster and StubHub, which I, I think is really interesting because they are an effective monopoly on uh, live uh, events essentially. So whether it's concerts yeah. or, or other things, how, how do you compete as a, either a, a early stage or startup or whatever it is, a, a, another marketplace against 
you know, some of these large marketplaces that exist now, like what can you, you know, what could somebody do uh, in order to, to compete against a Ticketmaster step up or more generally, you know, a very dominant player in, in, in a certain marketplace? Yeah, it's very tough because, you know, as we discussed, I discussed in the book, you know, uh, these marketplaces ultimately become monopolies. And so it's very hard for a startup to get going against them. Uh, but there are ways to uh, uh, to do that. Uh, uh, one is by taking advantage of a technology innovation. Um, so Craigslist, for example, was the marketplace for used goods. Uh, and even today, is, you know, it has a lot of uh, transactions going through its marketplace. Uh, but what uh, happened was uh, OfferUp, uh, which um, launched in about 2011-12 timeframe, they took advantage of the move to mobile, uh, which Craigslist did not. And so they made it very easy for you to just take a picture of a used item and then publish that on their marketplace. And then they had instant messaging capability where the buyers and the consumers uh, could uh, interact with the suppliers and and negotiate on the price, et cetera, and, and decide where to meet to buy the, the item. Whereas with Craigslist, uh, it was a lot more challenging to do that. So they took advantage of technology innovation to disrupt an existing player in the marketplace. Um, but there are uh, other examples, you know, uh, you know, before StubHub came into the market, you know, Ticketmaster was the sole supplier of live events, but StubHub kind of became the, um, their kind of uh, angle uh, was, uh, you know, second hand t- tickets or tickets that were being sold by people who already purchased tickets and want to no longer want to go to the event. And so they found a different niche that they could focus on that Ticketmaster was not focused on. So those are two different strategies. You know, one is take advantage of technology innovation. And the second is to identify a particular niche that the current incumbent is not focused on. Yeah, I think that's great advice and, and really interesting to be thinking about it in you know how not just marketplaces, but how general disruption can happen and, and where to focus uh on those specific areas, whether it's, you know, an area that's not being well addressed by an existing monopoly or, um, you know, using some of the new technologies and innovations that are happening in order to leverage that into, into entering or, or, or growing uh, more. But as you, as you've talked about, talked about, uh, monopolies, I, I'm interested and you talk about this in the book as well, you know, uh, why do some companies or marketplaces become monopolies and what can or should we do about it? You know, not just in disrupting, but you know, what are some of the things that we we generally should be doing about, uh, you know, these large monopolies or large monopoly marketplaces? Right. So uh, monopolies um, happen when uh, the marketplaces, you know, become very large in terms of consumers and suppliers uh, and becomes very hard for somebody else to compete with that level of scale. Now, being a monopoly by itself is not bad. Uh, What is problematic is uh, where the monopoly takes advantage of it to the, at the expense of suppliers or consumers. So as an example, uh, Amazon has a, um, uh, you know, private label business. 
Uh, you may have noticed if you want to buy an iPhone cable, then you will see a listing for Amazon Basics, which is their private label brand. And so, um, uh, at least initially, uh, Amazon promoted its private label business at the expense of other suppliers who are also in that same business. So that is problematic. Uh, another issue that's been problematic is um, where um, employees have accessed data about certain suppliers to figure out which markets they should enter into, uh, even though they have an internal policy not to uh, do that, but they were not really policing that effectively. Um, so those are just two examples of how you know some some monopolies like Amazon are taking advantage of their their market power, um, and the way to you know address that is through regulation. Uh, I think Congress uh, has actually done a lot of investigation in this regard, and they need to move forward to you know have certain rules and regulations, um, you know, force uh, Amazon to spin off its private label business, for example, uh, to have strict regulation against accessing supplier data, et cetera. So that's something that I think is really a regulatory uh, issue uh, that Congress needs to pursue. Uh, And I think you're definitely right because we see so many of these entrenched monopolies happening and then ultimately very little to be done. And, And kind of like you said, that it's not necessarily a problem per se until you see it hurting the suppliers, like in the case of, of Amazon, you know, taking the data and promote and doing the self-promotion within Amazon itself to put theirs above others uh, and ultimately hurting the suppliers or hurting the consumers, which, you know, we've seen in the case of a number of companies, but, you know, as we were talking about Ticketmaster and, and StubHub, you know, those coming very much to mind in, you know, not being able to basically do an event without using them and then you know them not being able to uh handle the supplies we saw like recently with the taylor swift concerts and and a number of other things where just hurting the consumers or the customers or the end users and so uh needing to really regulate uh how these develop and then also what happens after they do and and can we start to pull that apart a little bit in a way that ultimately will benefit um, everybody from, from the suppliers supplying things to the consumers and buyers buying things. I I think that that's such an important part. Absolutely. I want to step back just a little bit into, you know, some of the the companies that you've built and the work that you've done Um, as you have been building companies and, you know, you you've been on this entrepreneurial journey for some time what have been some of the most important things that you have learned in in doing that and and you building these companies and and having you know, some of these successful exits? Yeah, one uh, key lesson that I learned um, was to really vet your startup idea. Uh, you know, uh, do some uh, market research, uh, talk to other entrepreneurs, talk to the VC community. You know, sometimes what happens is that people are really afraid to do that because they, they feel that somebody might steal their idea. Um, whereas, um, you know, ideas a dime a dozen, it's really execution that really counts. So uh, I would encourage founders to really go out there and conduct market research to understand, hey, is this a pain point or a need that is uh, really significant uh, and it's worth addressing and that uh, 
the existing solutions in the market don't really do a good job of uh, addressing that need or pain point. Uh, in my case, for example, with the, my first company, TMOD Systems, uh, I made the assumption that uh, small businesses would want a web-based uh, email solution um, you know, uh, at that time. Uh, unfortunately, I was a bit early. Uh, today, that's very commonplace, but uh, I was very early at that time. And I could have discovered that through market research. Uh, fortunately, I was able to pivot to, to a different solution and still succeed, uh, but I could have avoided all that pain and agony. I think that's such great advice. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm interested, as you went from that into some of the other ones, you know, how did you go about doing some of that initial research and, and problem validation before you know, jumping into some of these other products and companies that you built? Yeah, so it's uh, uh, several ways. You know, uh, one is uh, identifying potential consumers uh, of my solution, uh, conducting interviews uh, with them. I recommend doing at least twenty-five to fifty interviews. It can be you know time-consuming, but I think it's very well worth uh, doing those uh, interviews because you'll get some really great insights. And then um, what I recommend to people is don't don't start by showing them your solution and asking them, hey, is this a good solution? Because you know most people will, don't want to offend you and they'll say, yeah, this, this looks pretty good. Uh, your first question is, is, is really about their pain point. Understand what are the critical pain points that they're facing. And if um, your pain point that you are addressing is in one of those pain points, if it's not, uh, then that's a problem because even though you might be solving some problem, it's not the top problem that they have that's top of mind, you know, for them. So make sure that you really uh, spend time understanding uh, what their pain points and needs are, you know, how invested they are in current solutions, uh, what it would take for them to migrate from their current solutions to your solution. All of that needs to be discovered before you move forward with your solution. I agree 100%. And I'm interested too in kind of the next step of that. Like once you have gone through and really validated the problem and the the idea, how have you found in your experience that you have really achieved the right solution or, or found kind of that product market fit? Yeah. That, yeah, you understand the problem and now you've created a, a solution and this is the right thing. We're going we're gonna to push this forward. Uh, as opposed to you know iterate or pivot again or anything like that, how how have you gone about uh, understanding that you you've achieved that product market fit and and then really going forward after that? That's a great question uh, that I again uh, tell a lot of uh, founders that I work with is um, there is one single metric that will tell you whether you have achieved product market fit and that's called a retention cohort. Um, and what that means is you track, you know, every, either every day or every week. You know, you start with, let's say, 100 uh, consumers who come and start using a product. You track those same users over a period of time. And you see how that, that cohort changes over time and how many people still keep coming back. If you have a very steep curve, that means that people are churning off very rapidly. And you don't really have product market fit. Whereas if you have a fairly flat curve, uh, that's a really good sign that you have product market fit. 
and that consumers are coming back time and time again to use your product. So that single metric alone is the most important metric that you need to focus on as a founder. I think that's absolutely spot on. I, I love that. Um, I'm I'm interested too in you know what did what other advice or, or what advice do you have for people who are looking to either get into you know product management like early in your career or into starting their own companies and mm-hmm. you know uh, you know a startup or another entrepreneurial venture. Yeah, um, uh, the 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 main thing I um, emphasize to people is um, leverage your expertise. You know, uh, these really successful founders have some expertise, some insight into some market, uh, and they see the technology trends that are influencing the market. They understand what issues customers are facing, etc. Those are some of the best. Uh, companies that I like to personally invest in is founders who have a deep understanding of a specific market and a pain point that allows them to understand what kind of a solution you need to develop for that market. Um, so that's what I suggest to people is if you have that insight, then absolutely you should go you know, do a startup because you can leverage that keen insight into building something that's really valuable and that will become someday a, a large company. I don't worry about so much about how the size of the market because over time that market will expand. You know, Facebook, for example, started with college students, right? Uh, but that was not ultimately their their market. The market market was the entire world. Um, but sometimes it's important to start with a niche focus and really master uh, that market before expanding your horizons. Uh, so again, um, you know, uh, see if you have some deep insight uh, and that allows you to build a unique solution and then go pursue that dream uh, with a startup. That's absolutely great. This has been a really, really great conversation. I have a couple of, of uh, wrap up questions before we before we finish up. But was there anything that we talked about or didn't get a chance to talk about uh, that you wanted to add in? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that I <clears throat> uh, mentioned in my book is one is about building trust in the marketplace. Very, very important because uh, in a new marketplace, uh, consumers are often reluctant to consummate transactions. So, uh, you know, having um, a, a, a review rating system is important. Uh, having insurance of some kind like Uber and, uh, and uh, Airbnb provide, that's important. Um, having, you know, generous return policies, uh, all of these things are important to creating trust. And then the, um, the other thing that I want to emphasize is that be careful about how much, um, you charge the different participants in the marketplace. Because, uh, if you charge too much, as, uh, Apple and Google have done, for example, they charge 30%, uh, for App Store uh, participants. That can create a lot of um, noise and dissatisfaction, and ultimately, you know, you'll be the target of regulators who will want to regulate what you can charge and so forth. So, uh, don't be too greedy just because you have monopoly power. Uh, be fair, uh, you know, and still be obviously profitable, uh, but be careful about how much you, you take from the different participants. Yeah, I think that those are excellent points uh, about building trust and how you can do it. Uh, within a marketplace. And then also, uh, like Google used to say, don't be evil yeah, about exactly. it. 
uh, yeah. especially when you're in a position that you can be. And we've definitely seen, you know, the, the fallout of that for Apple and Google, and we'll probably continue to see the fallout, but mm-hmm. the fact of taking a 30% cut yeah. from, from their app stores is, is, um, uh, something that just does not sit well anymore. Awesome. Well, uh, Sharish, before we kind of wrap up with a couple, uh, final questions, where can people find out more about you? about the things that you're working on and about uh, the books that you have written? Uh, probably the best way is to go to my uh, personal website, uh, which is shirishnetkarni.com. Um, you'll find my, on, on that side, you'll also find my LinkedIn uh, profile as well as my Twitter uh, uh, handle. Uh, so I'm very active on both LinkedIn and Twitter and I welcome people to connect with me. Uh, and I'm happy to advise startup founders, whatever needs they have. Uh, so the best way to reach out to me is probably through LinkedIn. Uh, so just search for my name and you'll find it on LinkedIn. Yeah, well, we'll put those links in the show notes as well. So you can check those out uh, mm-hmm. from this episode. All right, Shreesh, uh, we usually ask everybody a couple of wrap-up questions and these don't have to be necessarily uh professional related, uh, you know, open it up to anything, but have you read or watched or listened to anything recently that you found particularly interesting? Yeah. I read this book called no rules rules by Reed Hastings, the founder of, um, of, uh, Netflix. Um, it's an amazing book. It talks about their culture, uh, and how they, how they manage people, uh, essentially their philosophy is to, uh, not, for managers not to, you know, poke their nose in everything that their uh, employees do, but to really let them uh, thrive and succeed on their own. Uh, and it's a very compelling argument. Uh, so I highly recommend that book uh, if people want to read it. That's great. Yeah, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. There've been a lot of really, really good insights that I think have come out of Netflix and the way they built that company and the culture over the years. Uh, I know that there's a number of really good books and, and I haven't read that one, but I'll put, I'm going to put it on my list so I can read that one as well. Mm-hmm. It sounds really good. All right. And then finally, are there any products or, uh, applications or anything that you've been using recently that you've, uh, you want to call out, uh, it could be digital or physical products, anything. Yeah. So I love my, um, airport pros. Um, the reason I, I love them is because, um, I go for long walks and I can get, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to audiobooks, and I can get a lot done, uh, simply by putting those AirPods and, um, you know, especially the noise canceling features are, are pretty good, uh, and allows me to get a lot done while I'm enjoying nature. Definitely. Yeah. Those, those are good ones. We, we get a number of call outs for AirPods mm-hmm. on, on, on this podcast and it's, uh, for obviously good reason. Yeah. Well, Sharish, this has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate all of your insight, uh, both on product management, on technology, on entrepreneurship, and especially on the book, you know, Winner Takes All, uh, on marketplaces and monopolies. This has been very, very insightful and uh, absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, it's been a great conversation and uh, look forward to seeing the podcast. Look forward to uh, everybody listening to this and appreciate all of you listening as well. We'll talk again next time. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 
You can follow the show on TikTok at prodigy.co and on Twitter at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on both of those platforms at Kyle Larry Evans. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter Prodigy at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans or check out my Medium publication Prodigy. Of course, you can check out all these links in the show notes. Thank you.